So I'll read for us, starting in chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory and be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In this passage, Paul is making a shift from talking about all these big theological truths, all of these big um, ideas about who God is and what he has done for us. And he's taking all of those things and he's saying, if these things are true, since these things are true, since you believe them to be true, then you should also live accordingly. And so a lot of times in um, the church or in the Christian faith, um, when we talk about right living, we don't necessarily always give people the right reasons for making the right choices. Um, Paul here is saying the reason that we live as we do is because of who God is and what he has done for us. So when we're talking about right behavior and the way that we should act, it is always based on the work of God and what he has shown himself to be for us, what we have received from him. It's always based on God's character and who he is and what he has shown us about himself. And so when we get to verse 14 and it says, for this reason, 
I bow my knees before the Father, he's saying, I am praying for you because all of these other things are true. Because of that big long list of blessings that we covered in Ephesians chapter 1. Because you have been adopted as children. Because you have been sanctified. Because you have been um, received justification. Because God has saved you. And then he goes on to chapter 2. Because you have been moved from death into life. Because you are now alive in Christ. And because you are now one in Christ. Because Christ has brought peace among us. Because of all of these things, I am praying for you that you may be empowered through the Spirit and be able to do all that is now required of you because you're a believer. And so there are three, I think, main sections we can break this passage down into. Three kind of main ideas that Paul is trying to communicate to the Ephesians that he wants for them to be. And the first one that we see in this prayer at the beginning in verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3 is that he wants them to be empowered. All the things that he's asking of them are not things that they can do on their own. If they are going to be the people of God, then they have to be empowered by God to do the work that he has set before them. So it's God working through them that enables them to do what he requires of them. And an important thing to note in these verses is that he is praying for their empowerment from God in all of his fullness, the entire triune God. Now in your homework, there were some questions about the Trinity. Um, and I just wanted to make sure before we move on that we're all familiar with that concept. And I say that because once I did uh, like a small like a small mentoring thing with someone who had grown up in the church and she had never heard the word Trinity and I was just shocked. So I just want to make sure that we've covered it because it's a big deal. God is at once Father, Son, and Spirit. He is all three and all three are at work within us um, and among us and for us. And they're distinct um, or we make the distinctions based on the way we interact with them. So when we talk about God the Father, we're talking about God in heaven. We talk about God the Son, we're talking about any time God is on earth. God in the flesh is God the Son. And then God the Spirit is that indwelling that we have within us. And so it's important to note here that Paul prays to all three of them. He's, he doesn't just direct his prayers to God the Father. He says, I bow my knees to the Father from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's all three that he's talking about, about here. It is the empowering work of the Spirit within us by the will of the Father that enables us to become a fitting receptacle for Christ to dwell within us. How's that for complicated? <laughs> that makes perfect sense, right? Um, if without the work of the Spirit, we are not able to have faith. It is the Spirit working within us that moves us toward faith so that Christ can dwell within us, so that we can ask Jesus to come into our heart. And it is by the will of the Father that all of it happens. 
And so it is through faith. And the thing that we see here is that this prayer is specifically for believers because he's talking about their faith and their belief in God. So he's not just praying for the world at large, but he's praying for believers that um, God, according to the riches of his glory, may grant you to be strengthened with power. And when he's talking about the glory of God, like when I think about glory, I think about like, oh, you know, like light shining out, some big bright presence. Um, in the Old Testament, the word for glory is literally translated heavy. Like it's the same word that's used for the liver, which is the heaviest organ in your body. Side note for you, if, in case you wanted to know. But it's for heaviness. So when we talk about the glory of God, you're talking about the sum total of all of his attributes. Okay, So his goodness, his faithfulness, his love, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, all of that all together is the glory of God. Because only God has all of those things in that kind of measure. And so... God's glory is limitless in the sense that it is as infinite and eternal as he is because it's a part of his character. And because it is a part of him, that means that when he is applying those attributes to us, when he is giving us grace and love and mercy and when Paul is asking for God to bless us according to the riches of his glory, that those blessings, they're never going to run out because they are a part of God. And because God is infinite and eternal, so also are the blessings. Does that make sense? So because he is drawing on these things and he's asking for the power of God, and again, that's the power, um, that's the resurrecting power of God that we saw at the end of chapter 1 and, at the, and in chapter 2. It's the power to bring life to something that is dead. It's the power... Um, that in the Old Testament, we saw God bringing life to Sarah's womb and putting a baby there where there had not been one for years and years and years. You think about all of the stories in the Bible about barren women, but God is more powerful than that. He brings life to what is dead. And it's the same power also that is used to raise Christ from the dead. It's that resurrecting, life-giving power. That is the power that Paul is praying for the Ephesians to have so that Christ can dwell in their hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How can you know something that's beyond knowledge? Yeah, I, I think that's what he's praying here. Like without the spirit of God at work within us, we'll never be able to comprehend it. He enables us through faith to comprehend these great mysteries of God, to, to see him more clearly. Um, and he talks about being rooted and grounded in love. When you think about something with roots, um, what happens if like a tree doesn't have good roots? Their root system isn't established. It's blown over easily, right? Like even like baby trees, you notice they have like the lines tying them down to hold them steady when the wind blows because if they don't have something to hold them until their roots get established, um, then they'll be knocked down by the wind easily. Um, but one thing that I've always thought is interesting 
is that the biggest trees in the world have a very shallow root system. Um, have any of you ever been out west to see the redwood forest or the giant sequoias or anything like that? Huge trees. Have you seen the pictures at least of like, you know, the ones that you can literally drive a car through? I mean, we're talking huge. Um, up to 350 feet tall. They're so tall that when you try to take pictures of them, you can't even fit the whole tree in the frame. And they're really close together. That's one of the things I'm always struck with when I look at those pictures is there's these giant trees, but they're like right on top of each other. Well, I don't remember how I randomly found this information, but I did at one point, and it has always stuck with me that their roots are only, I mean, they're not deep at all. They're like maybe 12 feet deep. They're not nearly as deep as that you think that they would be, but they're wide. And they, because their trees are so close together, all of their roots like mingle and they intertwine and they, they form like this mat of roots. And together, their roots hold the giant trees up. And so without the support of the trees around them, they would not be able to grow to 350 feet tall. They wouldn't be able to do that at all. Those, those roots mingling together allow the trees to withstand far more than they would be able to do on their own. And I always think of that when I get to a passage like this that talks about being rooted and grounded, especially when I read verse 18 where it says that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? This is not something that we do alone, like by ourselves. We, we get the full, a fuller picture of who God is when we are in community with other believers. When you see God at work in someone else's life, when you hear their testimony about his love and faithfulness, it's meant to build up all of us to help us all grow into a deeper knowledge of who God is. Um, and those roots of what we're doing together is what helps us weather the storm when um, life gets tough for us, when you have your own um, doubting seasons, when the winds of life want to knock you over. It's the roots that you have established with the community of faith that will help you stand firm and face those things together. And another thing that I think when I read this passage is that um, every time we see the word you, we might as well say y'all. <laughs> because unfortunately, those who do not live in the South don't have a pronoun for a collective group of you. They'll say you guys or something like that, but they're just left with you, right? We can, when we use the word you, I can be talking to you, Lauren, by yourself, or I can talk to you, all of you. Well, Greek was not that way. Greek had two pronouns, and the ones that Paul is using here are the plural version. So he is talking to them as a group. This is not a prayer for individual empowerment. It's a prayer for the transformation of an entire community. He is praying for the church. Our quest to know God in all of his fullness should be done alongside other Christians. We shouldn't try to do it alone. I don't think we can do it alone. I mean, there you can all the time, it's not uncommon to hear of people who say, I believe in God, but 
I don't like the church. Maybe they got burned when they were younger. They had a bad experience. And so they don't go to church anymore, but they say they believe in God or, you know, they follow Christ. But apart from the community of faith, you just can't, you just can't hold on. You won't be able to make it through all that life throws at you. And so we should always seek to be in community to, with other believers. And when we do that, then we can see God in all of his fullness. And then God in all of his fullness can fill us um, because we are working together and all of that. Um, but the thing, another thing that stands out here is that his prayer is that they would be empowered and also that they would know the love of Christ. Um, and the thing about Christ's love that is unique, I think, from our typical kind of love when we talk about it is that his love is boundless, but it's sacrificial. It's self-sacrificial. And so when we, to know the love of Christ, we have to know Christ. And when we're praying for God to fill us with that love, to show us that love, then it means that we are asking for that type of love to fill us, um, which means then that we are required to love others in the same way that Christ has loved us, that we be the ones pouring out the sacrificial love, that we be the ones um, through which God is using to love others. So this is a big prayer. I think I don't often pray like this. I should. Um, and in fact, since we started reading through this, this whole week I have been literally praying the words of this prayer because if I don't have the words myself then I can always turn to the Bible to tell me what to say um, because I think it's a good prayer for the church especially in this season um, in this season when there is so much going on in the world around us um, where there's a lot of darkness and evil and it just seems like every time you turn on the news it's bad and gets worse um, then a prayer like this, I think the church needs to be empowered in this way for this time in this season. We need the Spirit of God to move among us, to fill us with that kind of love so that we can show the world what it looks like. That is what the world needs right now is this love of Christ to heal all of the brokenness. And that is the kind of empowering that he was praying for them. And he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We don't have to worry about whether or not God is able to do it because he is. He is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. Um, he is exceedingly able to meet all of our requests. And so that means that you can never go to God with something that is too much for him to handle. There is never a problem too big that he can't solve. There's never anything, any request that is too bold or too crazy. Um, this is a pretty bold prayer. And Paul is saying, no, God is able. He is more than able to do this. And so when he's thinking about the love of Christ and he's thinking about the power of God that, that enables and all of this, it just leads him straight into praise for who God is and for what he's able to do and for what he will, wants to do. It says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And it's like he closes that book of theological background and now he's moving on into practical living practical implications of what it means then 
um, since we have established all of these things, and, and then what does it mean? What does it mean for us as believers since all of these things are true? What does it mean for us to live out in the truth of this prayer? And so this is the second, I think, big, big thing that Paul is trying to communicate for them. He wants them to be empowered. That, that was the first section. And then the second thing that we see here in the first six verses of chapter 4 is that he wants them to be unified. He, it is important to him that the church present a united front to the world around them. And we talked about some of this last time, about the divide between Jews and Gentiles and how it was kind of a big deal in the church. It was a real, actual problem that they were dealing with. And so he revisits it, revisits it here. Last time he gave them all the theological reasons, saying Christ has broken down every barrier, Christ has brought us peace, and now he's saying, okay, these things are true, therefore you must act like they're true. Um, ethics and right living is theology with flesh on it, right? So um, we are what we think. So there are all sorts of people who might say they believe one thing, but then their life doesn't look anything like it. I mean, we all know people like that, right? People who say they believe in God or, you know, but then like the only time they ever act like it is when they're at church on Sunday mornings three times a year. You know, that's the only time that their faith is ever manifested is in, you know, those three hours of the entire year. And the rest of the year, they're off doing their own thing, okay? That is not how it is supposed to be. Paul says, if you believe these things, then you should act accordingly. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's a lot of ones. Do you think he was trying to get a point across? Maybe, perhaps, maybe a small one. Um, this division that they were facing was a real one between the Jews and Gentiles. And I think even though we talked about it last time, especially with everything that has happened in the world around us since then, um, it's still a conversation we need to be having. The church today is not divided necessarily between Jews and Gentiles because, you know, we are all of us now the church. We have split off from Jews so there's no longer necessarily Jewish believers and Gentile believers. There's just believers. So we are united in that sense. But I think here in the South, we have the white churches and the black churches. And, you know, even um, in Nashville, where I went to high school, on the way to our church, we passed the Korean church. And, you know, the, all the other, what are, the Greek Orthodox church and like all the churches divided literally by ethnicity and, um, and race. And I think that we are just presenting a fractured view of the church to the world. Because if we believe these things are true, if we do believe that Christ came preaching peace, if we believe that his blood is strong enough to overcome any barrier that divides us, then shouldn't we also be acting like it? 
I mean, they're tough questions. I don't know how we go about fixing all that it is wrong in our society, but I think in the church, at least, we need to be a picture of what heaven looks like because it's not just going to be white believers in church. It's going to be all of us there together in heaven someday. And so I think that if we are able to overcome the things that divide us and come together now and this time, then we will and stand together, then it will present a powerful message to the world um, of what the blood of Christ is able to accomplish. That it's not just these beliefs that we say that we are true that it actually makes a difference in our lives and in the way that we interact with others. Um, we have a chance, I think, to, to send a powerful message to the world, but the question is whether or not we will step up and do it. I think it starts with individual relationships, with cultivating friendships with people who are different than us, um, no, I don't know. I mean, I don't think we should necessarily walk up to the black church and say, hey, is anybody here want to be my friend? <laughs> I mean, I don't, that would be awkward, maybe slightly. Um, but I think that there are chances in our community to, to form bonds, and we need to do that. We need to do that when we have the chance, rather than shy away from it. And it's just like any other gathering. We are most comfortable with people who are like us. Um, you know, in our own age group or who have kids or who don't have kids, no matter, you know, what, whatever you're like, most likely most of your friends are that way too. It's just natural for us to divide ourselves in this way. Um, but I think that we need to be making steps to overcome those divisions when we can, when those opportunities arise, we need to do that. And the reason that we need to do it is because, especially for other believers of other races, we have something in common that is bigger than our skin color, that is more important than our skin color. Um, And the thing that we have in common is our faith and in Christ. And that's why he goes into this big, long one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. That belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And what he's saying is there's one God. Like God is unified in himself. The Trinity is unified in itself. Um, But also we are unified by our beliefs. We hold those in common. And then we should be, that should be enough to hold us together. Um, I went to, when I went to seminary, I went to an interdenominational seminary, which is unusual in a lot of ways, um, because, you know, there's Southern Baptist seminaries and Methodist seminaries and Presbyterian seminaries. Like, every denomination has its own seminary. I chose to go to the interdenominational seminary because it was the closest one to me. (laughs) It was a geographical issue for me at the time. So I went there, and I was a little unsure about how it would turn out, but it turned out to be one of the most enriching experiences of my life because even though we didn't all agree on, you know, some of the less essential issues, um, we did agree on the most important things. And so we were able to talk about our differences and kind of learn from each other and lean on each other and see different perspectives. Um, 
because we had a firm foundation underneath us. And because of that, I've got friends in all of these different denominations serving in different ministries all over the country. And it's just been a really cool thing to see how God has taken um, the bonds between us and, and done amazing things through it. If we had all gone to our own individual, like if we had stayed separate, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't have those bonds. We wouldn't be able to work together. Um, one of my, my, one of, one of the guys that I graduated with is a youth minister in Arkansas now. And Dennis's sister and brother-in-law, they live in Little Rock. And Bobby, that's my brother-in-law, sent me a message one day. He's like, hey, do you know anybody who can do a youth retreat for us? I'm like, well, I do know a youth minister there, but he's, he's not free will Baptist. <laughs> you know, they're free will Baptist. I'm like, I mean, if you're okay with that, then, you know, sure, contact Josh. He'll, he may be able to help you. And he did, and Josh was able to go. And so it's just really neat how the barriers can be overcome if we let them if we're willing to do that. And so um, Paul is saying that when we do that, then it, it presents this unified picture of the body of Christ to the world, and it's a powerful message. And then he moves into this kind of confusing section. Does it confuse anyone at first glance? Like ascending and descending and going up and going down, and what does all this mean, and what does that have to do with anything that he has just said? Um <laughs> The, the main thing that he is trying to get across here, I think, is that Christ has gifted the church. And he wants, this is the third main section that we're going to move into, he wants us to be mature believers. And part of that is um, living out the gifts that he has given us. So these verses, starting in verse 6, it says, but, to, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And what he is doing here is he's taken a verse from Psalms. Um, it's Psalm 68:18, and he's kind of flipping it a little bit. Like this quote that he gives is not exactly how it appears in the Psalms. Um, it's close, but not exactly the same. Okay? So in Psalm 68, it can be described as a victory psalm. Okay? So it is this picture of this victorious warrior king going off to battle, and he's like making his triumphal entry back into Jerusalem. He's going up to the Temple Mount, and all along the way, people are, you know, cheering him along. He's having this procession. He goes to the temple. And in the original verse, it says, when he ascended on high to the temple mount, he led a host of captives and he received gifts from men. And here it says he gave gifts to men. And so he's kind of flipping the script a little bit. And he's saying um, that Christ is the victor. He has all these spoils but he doesn't keep them to himself. He gives them out to the church for the church to use for their benefit. And the gifts that he gives us specifically, um, he says he, get, he names them. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. So the church leaders 
um, he gives to us so that we may become who he wants us to be. So he has called us to this great unity, but within the unity there is also diversity. We are not supposed to be carbon copies of one another. We are all gifted differently and have different purposes. Um, we are all parts of the whole that work together for the benefit of the body. And so Christ gives us the church leaders um, for a specific reason. But what I love about this verse is that he says that the specific purpose of these church leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, not to rub, push any buttons or anything, but I think maybe perhaps a lot of times we expect it to work the other way around, that um, the apostles and the teachers and the pastors and the leaders are supposed to do the work of ministry for us. You know, if you have a friend who may be going through a problem or, you know, they, they you say, you should talk to my pastor. He can really help you. Or um, we send the pastors out on hospital visits to go visit our sick. Um, we expect, I think, far too much from our church leaders. They were never meant to do all the work of ministry. We are supposed to do the work of ministry. He gives us the church leaders to equip us for that, to build up the body of Christ and to teach us until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Those are the tasks of our church leaders, to equip the saints for, for ministry, to build up the body, and to teach us so that we can then go out and do the work of Christ. I think a lot of times we stop at the teaching and don't go out. Like how many, <laughs> I know so many people who know so much about the Bible. Like they go to Bible studies and they write in their journals and they have like their Bible journals like where they're drawing pretty, like they know so much about God, but it never goes beyond their personal devotional time. They never get busy doing the work of ministry that God has called us to. But God has called us to far more than a personal faith. He has called us to be the light of the world, to be his representatives and to do his work, to be his body literally in the world. And so that's why it's so important for us to be unified because each one of us have a different gift. And if we're all fighting among ourselves and we cannot be unified, then we will not be able to do the work that God has called us to because we'll be divided among ourselves. And so it's important for us to embrace our gifts, to lean into that calling that God has prepared for us. And yes, knowledge and studying the word is good. We need to do those things for our own personal development, but we don't need to leave it there. It is always for the purpose of sharing it, for, for not keeping it for ourselves, but for giving it back to the world. And so he says that we should be growing up into mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And what he's saying here is that Christ is the measuring rod by which we are evaluated. So when you're talking about spiritual maturity, I know, right? Who measures up? 
yeah, I'm like way down here. <laughs> you think about the growth charts, yeah, here he is, I'm way down here. So, I mean, that's not intimidating at all, right? Yeah, sure, we can cover that, we're good. We'll get there, <laughs> yeah. Um, but he is the measuring rod, he is the standard that we are shooting for. That is what we are trying to do, is to grow into, in our Christ-likeness so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. I love my kids, and I tell them all the time, don't grow up. Just stop growing. And they're like, Mommy, I can't stop. I got to keep growing. You know that. And I'm like, no, please stop. But the truth is that it would be really weird <laughs> if they stopped growing. In all honesty, I do not want a four-year-old for the rest of my life. I mean, let's just be truthful here. If Kendall actually stopped growing, you would have to commit me to the insane asylum. <laughs> because that is not how it's meant to be. Children are meant to grow. They're meant to mature. And when they don't, like think about all these kids who like, you know, they graduate from college and then they just like move right back into their parents' house and they never move out of that, you know. They are not actually grown-ups yet. They're overgrown children and there's, we... <laughs> it came up today actually, how like it's different like the age of a grown-up. Yeah. Like Eight-year-olds, you know, aren't moving out and getting married and having their own house. Yeah, it's like grown-ups have now like shifted in society but like spiritually speaking that is not a good thing you do not want to be a child forever because what are children like they are so easily influenced um, I could tell my kids that the Sun used to be purple and it used to rain butterflies when they were younger and they might believe me because I told them you know they are so easily influenced and what Paul is saying here is that we have to be on guard against that. We must grow in our faith. We must grow in our knowledge of who God is and in our knowledge of the Word so that we are not so easily influenced, so that we will test and approve the messages we hear by the standard of the Word. Because the truth is that there are so many messages out there that get it almost right. Like they are so close to being on target, but they are far enough off that it's dangerous for the people of God. And so if you do not know the Bible, then you will be easily led astray by these people who purport to be, you know, followers of God. I won't name any names, but they preach the prosperity gospel. And, you know, if you do good things for God, then God will do good things for you, you know. Um, and there are so many others with messages like that. It is important for us to grow in our faith and in our knowledge so that we won't be tossed around and led astray. Instead of being led astray by these falsehoods, we need to embrace the truth. That's verse 15. Speaking the truth in love. If we are going to speak the truth, you have to know the truth. You have to know the word. And whenever we are sharing truth with people and speaking truth over people's lives, we have to do it in a loving way. It is not enough to um, look at the homosexual community and say, what you're doing is a sin. Well, I mean, that is truthful. It is sin. But it doesn't accomplish anything. 
the truth without love is ineffective. And so we have to find a way to marry the two together, to be truthful and loving at the same time, because that is the way that the body grows. It says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we have to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ so that we can emulate that love within the church, be unified, let that love overcome all of our differences. You see the common theme here? So that from the outside looking in, people will say, I want to be a part of that. Do any of you, have you ever seen like a family that just loves each other so much? Like they have the most fun together. They go on the best vacations. They're like best friends. The siblings all get along. They're like grownups and they like want to hang out with each other. (laughs) I see those families and I'm like, they are doing something right. That is what a family is supposed to be. And that's how it should be for the world looking into the church. There should be so much love within our walls and among our people that they say, I want to be a part of that. Because nobody wants to be a part of bickering and fighting. Like, uh uh-uh, no drama. I do not want to be around the drama. Save me from the drama, please. Dennis and his, side note, Dennis and his roommate, um, Brent, and uh, in college, they taped a sign on their door, their apartment door, that said, save the drama for your mama. They didn't want any drama entering their apartment. And so, (laughs) no drama. There should not be any of that. Instead, the church should be filled with love, and it should be overflowing from us. But in order for that to happen, we must first be rooted in it, and we must first know it for ourselves, to know that we are loved and that we have been loved um, with a love that we do not deserve. I mean... Romans 5.8 says that Christ died for us when we were still sinners. So this is the way that God shows his love for us. So when God chose to show us love, he did it by doing the unimaginable. And I think it's time for us to start doing some unimaginable things, to start showing love to people in unexpected ways. And when we do that, then the church will grow as it is supposed to. And we'll be glorifying God just as we have been called to do.